Hello and welcome to another episode of Science Shambles, Cosmic Shambles Network. Producer Trent here, as usual, uh, with a cold this week, so sounding even more annoying than usual. If you enjoy Science Shambles, don't forget to check out our new podcast, Brain Yapping, with Dean Burnett and Rachel England. You'll find that on uh, the website, cosmicshambles.com slash brain yapping, or wherever you listen to podcasts, just search for Brain Yapping and download that. And please do subscribe and leave a comment and a review on Apple Podcasts. That really does help us get the podcast out there. And, of course, you can support the Cosmic Shambles Network at Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. We really appreciate your support there. And now it is on to today's episode of Science Shambles with Robin chatting to archaeologist Dr. Brenna Hassett and particle physicist Dr. Linda Cremonisi. Hello, welcome to Science Shambles. Uh, today we're, we're joining, well, it's going to be a world of uh, archaeology and neutrinos and we're going to find out where the shaded area may possibly be between those two things. Uh, we're joined by Dr Linda Kremnisi and we're also joined by Dr Brenna Hassett. Uh, Brenna, who you will have heard before because she's appeared on some of the book Shambles before and um, is uh, was, was one of the pioneers of Trailblazers, which was uh, looking at highlighting uh, the... Uh, contribution, major contribution by women in generally any of the sciences that involve digging, basically. That that would be fair enough to say, wouldn't it? And That is correct. The dirty sciences. And that was... Uh, when did you... Was, is that six, seven years ago you started doing that? We're almost six. I mean, we should be starting first year. We should be wearing a little uniform. I mean, we are uh, all grown up now. And you did... I mean, there's some amazing research that, you you know, finding... We were talking about this, actually, on the... We just did one about comics earlier on uh, for the for the Book Shambles show, where once people disappear or are disappeared culturally, uh, it's remarkable. Like, we were talking about Alan Moore when he's, he's been writing about the poor treatment of, of various different individual cartoonists in the British comic scene and trying to root out the forgotten women cartoonists and writers has been yeah, very difficult because it appears that and with what you managed to find in terms of incredible photographs of some of the the the, the pioneers yeah and all who, of this stuff is just sitting in archives and it turns out that every archivist somewhere has like a, a you know a favorite a pet trailblazer you know some woman in science who's just hanging out at petra swinging a mattock or otherwise you know climbing pyramids in their pants and there's a picture somewhere and someone knows about it so what we do is basically put out an sos to everyone who's got site records uh, old family photos it's like have you got a lady in a fabulous victorian hat with some sort of sharp digging implement let us know well you said in, in one of the the blog posts that you've done for cosmic shambles you you talk about I think it was someone at CERN, in fact, was uh, that still dealing with these ideas, which are, well, of course, the thing is, it's very hard to get representation of women because they're just not as interested in that world. And, you know, still dealing with that now. Yeah, I think I think that's um, I think uh, it was a dinosaur type of comment, and as we know, the digging sciences only paleontology deals with dinosaurs and usually quite sharply. And uh, I, But I think it's true. So people have this idea that there were just no women in science, which is this kind of slightly hilarious thing. It's like saying, you know, there weren't really any women hunter-gatherers because, you know, we don't see them. We just see men in the pictures running down mammoths. And it's like, well, someone had to draw the picture. But women, you know, sort of always been in science doing things that... Um, 
maybe they didn't get the credit for, you know, illustrating, cataloging, or because they weren't allowed to go to university, they didn't get the fancy title and they didn't get the authorship. The number of sort of fabulous scientific tomes which start with that preface, which, and thanks to my wife for typing the manuscript, when it should read, and thanks to my wife for writing half of this manuscript. Uh, there's there's a lot of that. So we just try and dig out, you know, what those women were doing, because a lot of it is stuff that we would consider real science today. But, you know, back in the day, you just got a, a nod, a wink, and chucked out of the Geological Society. See, that's what I, f- I find fascinating, that the, the subjective... And we'll have to do a History Shambles podcast at some point now. The subjective <laughs> nature of history, where we, we think... I mean, I'm thinking about the First World War as well, where more often than not, in fact, nearly always, what I grew up with, all the books only showed... Anglo-Saxon men in in the trenches, and yet there were a huge number of people from India, a huge number of people from Afro-Caribbean. You know, but those to actually were those pictures. You know, there are some pictures, but how much were those pictures avoided, and how much were those pictures then just placed somewhere? You know, all of that part of history I find, or simply not taken. Linda, we won't we won't keep going, but but interesting as well for you in terms of you know in in, in physics, do you uh, are you optimistic in terms of I, I know someone the other day, in fact I think it was during one of the Shambles shows showed what put you know if you put in physicist just as a general search for what the image that comes up, and of course as we know images are you know that, that they stick. Do you, do you feel optimistic that when when the Google image search it's going to actually show uh, a breadth of, uh, of of different people? Oh, this is a difficult question. <laughs> um, I feel like, yes, we are going in the right direction and that um, in some in some ways, the fact that we are aware right now that there is a problem with what the Google image search is uh, is showing us. And uh, in that the, the fact that we are aware that there is a problem with representation and we're starting to do something about it is... I think yes, we can be a little bit more optimistic towards the future, but there's a lot to uh, there's still a lot to do, especially to have um, uh, people to recognize that uh, the contribution of women in physics is as important as the contribution of men in physics, and uh, so many women have been completely um, forgotten and. Uh, because, uh, as you said earlier, we weren't allowed to study or we weren't allowed to uh, have their name on a paper or on a book. But that doesn't mean that we didn't do the work. What would you call them? Atom blazers? <laughs> Star <laughs> blazers? What, what is the name for the forgotten women mm. of physics? There's, there's got to be a great name out there somewhere. <laughs> there is, I know there's a new book, which I haven't read yet, but it's on my shelf. And it's a, a, a lab of her own. Do you know about this one? Yeah. It's, which I is think kind that, of taken from the Virginia Woolf, and that's, that's, a room of her yeah. own. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is that, that's not the one that's sort of biographical, that's um, the woman who was working in a lab and had a terrible time. I, I, I think it's about a general history. But anyway, anyway, we don't need yeah. to talk about that. We should actually talk about the science. I suppose, <laughs> science! The, the, uh, now, I want to start off on neutrinos just because they are, I think when you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously not a scientist or, or, or clever, but I, I, because I work with, you know, there's certain ideas that suddenly pop up and they feel so counterinstinctual. I remember the first time of hearing about neutrinos, it felt like, oh, I didn't know things could behave like that. I thought, <laughs> you know what, going straight through, you know, and I remember uh, Dara Brin had a lovely routine about a film which actually has a moment where one of the scientists goes, oh, my God, the neutrinos are mutating. And <laughs> oh uh, he said, that, that won't be going on. <laughs> yeah. So can you, first of all, because that's, that's the area you work in, what, 
give us a little bit of a background of, of what is a neutrino and why are they important for understanding the universe? Yeah, so uh, neutrinos are tiny particles and are part of the uh, standard model of particle physics. So if we think of us and the Earth and the universe and everything beh- uh, around us, it's made of um, atoms and then you can uh, decompose the atom in a nuclei and, and electrons going around it and then you can then take uh, the nuclei and, uh, and pick out the protons and the neutrons and then you can then uh, divide again the protons and neutrons into quarks. So like quarks and electron, we co- and re- electrons, we call them uh, fundamental particles because we cannot break them down any more than that. So neutrinos are fundamental particles in the sense that we cannot break down neutrinos into something smaller. And uh, they're very interesting because they're similar to electrons, but they don't have uh, an electric charge. And uh, and because of this, they very rarely interact. So they interact very rarely, and but then on the other side, they're very abundant. So they're everywhere. So if, if we stick our thumb out right now, there's one billion neutrinos going through our thumb every second. And these are just the neutrinos that come from the sun. And... Um, and these neutrinos are really important because uh, they get they get created in um, what we call um, weak nuclear interactions, and in particular in the core of the sun when the sun is uh, um, doing the fusion the fusion reactions of uh, taking two hydrogens to make helium and then uh, get the light out uh, and the heat if you want that we see uh, loads of neutrinos get produced and these neutrinos come. Uh, come to Earth, and but they come to Earth also like in the form of uh, neutrinos that are produced by stars. Uh, but you get neutrinos that are produced by bananas. Um, a banana thing produces about eighty neutrinos per second. We produce a certain amount of neutrinos per second. I actually don't remember on top of my head the uh, the number. But then you know you think you have like all these billions and billions of neutrinos going through your body every seconds, but then. In your lifetime, on average, you will only interact with one of them. So neutrinos interact very, very rarely. They're really difficult to see. And often people refer to neutrinos as like the ghost particles because they can travel through matter. They can travel in a straight line through literally across the universe from like the most remote corners of the universe. And they get to to Earth and they can bring us information about things that are very, very far away or... um, any sort of other things. No, I, well, I was just... I'm, I'm fascinated in the fact that with if something doesn't interact, mm-hmm. how, first of all, that moment of discovery, and then secondly, how do you... Once you're trying to do experiments, if you're trying to do an experiment... You know, I pre- yeah. most experiments and most detection occurs, I presume, mm-hmm. by the fact, you know, if you'd say the yeah. net or whatever you want to <laughs> say, whatever the size of the thing is, it's the moment of interaction, it's the moment of entrapment mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. So how do you... Go, how how are you able to use them to gain information when their interaction is so limited? So because they interact very rarely, but they do interact. So what you need is like huge volumes, like absolutely huge volumes. And these detectors that we have and we use in particle physics are 
giant. And so, for example, um, one of the most famous detectors in the world, in the world, neutrino detectors in the world, is called Super Kamiokande, and it's a 50 kiloton water detector in um, in a mine in Japan. So you you go to a mine in Japan and you think you need to think of this huge tank is like 50 meters times 50 meters times 50 meters of water, and uh, and because you have so much water, so much mass to look at, then you see some of the neutrinos that travel through it. And um, and also, as I said, like you need neutrinos in big numbers. So what we do, um, for example, in one of the experiments I work on, it's called NOVA. It's an experiment in the US. So we produce our own beam of neutrinos. So we produce a lot of neutrinos uh, in um, in a research lab uh, just outside Chicago. It's called Fermilab. And then we produce these neutrinos and throw them through 800 kilometers of Earth to me- and until we, get, we reach Minnesota. And then we look at what happened, <laughs> what happened between um, Illinois and Minnesota to, to these neutrinos. Yeah. And Minnesota has no problem with this, that you're just throwing neutrinos at it. They're it's totally fine. Okay yeah. it. Minnesota's completely fine with it. <laughs> so why did you, I mean, because again, it, it's, I, I find that the trouble is that I'm always trying to create images in my head. And what yeah. I realise is that when you're dealing with things at that level, you, there isn't actually shape and form. I mean, I know that people always mm. say that about the model of, you know, the, the atom that we grew up with in, in, in the school is, is barely even a metaphor for what it is. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a... So do you find that when you're engaging with these things, are you able... Do you visualise? Do you create a visual image in your head? Or do you see the mathematics of it? Because that's something that I'm always fascinated with <laughs> physics is that I, I do realise that, speaking to friends of mine who are physicists, what they process through their head, what they are able to picture is a series of symbols that will be null and void to me. <laughs> um, I actually often try to visualise what's happening to the neutrinos, even in my head. And I know how I said earlier, like neutrinos just go through your body, go through everything. So you actually need to think that even atoms are mainly empty space. Like um, we have this image that the, you have a nuclei and all the electrons going around it, but the atom is mainly is mainly like empty. Like the distance between the nuclei and the electrons, it's it's really big com- compared to the size of the nuclei and the size of the electrons. So I know we 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 live and uh, touch things and we think that things are solid, but what you actually when you're touching something that is solid, what you what you're actually feeling is uh, the electromagnetic repulsions between the um, the atoms, if you want, on your fingers and the atoms uh, of the object that you're effect- effectively touching. But it's it's all very empty, and that's mm-hmm. how neutrinos, being so tiny, just go through it. They're just, I don't know, like mosquitoes going through like a, a football net, if you want. When, when you first, what what was the, the 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 first work that you did in terms of with neutrinos? What was what was the the first what you you hoped? Or, or in fact, now I'll ask a broader question: What do you, in in terms of with your greatest ambition, what would you hope? In your in in your research lifetime, um, we will be able to find out from them with neutrinos. Um, I think the big hope, and uh, I think we're actually not very far from it, is to understand the origin of the universe. Um, neutrinos actually hold the key 
for the origin of the universe. This is because if we go back 13.9 billion years ago when there was the Big Bang, um, you can think of matter and antimatter being created in equal amounts. And uh, and we know that antimatter is a bit like matter's evil twin. And when matter and antimatter meet, they annihilate, so they destroy each other and create pure energy. So we have one of the big puzzles that we have right now is uh, how come if um, after the Big Bang we had equal amounts of matter and antimatter, how come nowadays we look around at the universe, we look around and we only see matter? So what happened to the antimatter? Where did all the antimatter go? And neutrinos actually hold a key onto this and as to why we uh, matter was preferred over, over antimatter. So um, in this experiment I was talking about earlier in the NOVA experiment, what we do is uh, we produce neutrinos and, uh, in, uh, in Illinois and throw them to, to Minnesota. But then what we do, we can also produce anti-neutrinos in Illinois and throw them to Minnesota again and see how many survived because these differences in how many neutrinos survive in uh, given like a certain um, a certain amount of uh, distance traveled and how many antineutrinos survive are the key as to say whether neutrinos preferred matter over over antimatter so you feel that because that's one of the, the great mysteries here. Yeah, the two things that are, are hugely problematic it seems, yeah. in terms of science are that we are unable to actually pinpoint the beginning of life <laughs> and we're unable to pinpoint the beginning of the universe. Is it, is it still, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it was about, is it, it used to be 10 to the minus 37 of a second that it's before then where everything gets a little bit hazy, mm. which is such a ridiculous. But is it <laughs> roughly around there that? Yes, yeah, it's it's roughly around there. And when you're talking about um, the earliest st stages of the universe, you're also talking about this um, intense, um, sorry, this really, really high energy. And that's also what other um, particle physics experiments around the world are trying to simulate, are trying to recreate the early stages of the universe to understand then how it, it evolved. And uh, seeing neutrinos preferring matter over antimatter in even if in even if in a, in a tiny way then it gets multiplied if you want while the universe gets expanded now that's around 13.9 billion years ago brenna i've realized there's no way i'm going to be able to segue from this discussion into what you do uh, apart from to say it's very interesting isn't it the neutrinos they're passing through the soil now you like digging so there we are that's uh now, you're... That's, that's another champion, champion Robin Segway. Yeah, there we I, go. I, I hope you found it. It was there. It was there all the time. You, I mean, you, you spend. I mean, that, that's again what I find. It's such a you know the 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 broadness of the possibilities in terms of you know evidence based thinking. Where I might say that to work on that scale and then to work on the scale that you're working on, which is now you're about to go back to another dig, aren't you? I think is that right? Uh, there, there is a possibility. Um, the summer season is approaching, so there's there are. Um, well, there's still stuff to dig up. You would think that after, you know, basically hundreds of years of archaeology, we'd be done. But no, no, there's, people have left stuff everywhere. Now, and what has changed in terms of your... Well, can you tell us about, for instance, your, your most recent... You came back about, what, what month ago, two months ago from your, your last year? had quite a long... Oh, yes, yes. No, I... Um, so, um, I have been off in various places because um, that's what archaeology allows you to do is go off somewhere nice and dig or go off somewhere 
slightly miserable and dig or go off somewhere where it's 50 degrees centigrade and the air itself is trying to kill you and dig. Um, so I opted for the latter. Um, and I um, actually have been working on the fallout from an excavation that actually happened in 2015 uh, and was, was going on for years before that. But um, because I am a specialist, which was um, a decision on my part to learn a special skill in archaeology so that I didn't just have to do the digging. I could sometimes sit in the nice air-conditioned lab. Uh, I'm very pleased that I made that choice. But in 2015, uh, I went out to southeastern Turkey uh, to a province called Sirt under the authority of a, um, the Batman Museum, which is in fact a real province in Turkey. And um, we went out and dug a giant mound, which contains about 7,000 years of human history. That's quite a long time. And about 5,000 years ago, so think pyramids bit before, so older than pyramids, uh, we found an amazing cemetery. And this cemetery was full of dead people, which is good. You do expect that. Um, what you don't necessarily expect is the um, presence of a retainer burial, which essentially means uh, a lot of dead kids arranged nicely around some other dead kids. And uh, so I've spent the last couple of years trying to work out what I am absolutely not allowed to call CSI Mesopotamia. So what, what's a retainer? So that's that's, the, that's that... me being cagey about calling it human sacrifice. Right. So um, for those of you who are keen fans of CSI, I, archaeology is a lot more difficult than it looks. Um, there, are, there are very few blood spatters or, you know, soft tissue wounds. If you think about trying to work out what happens to people in the past, especially to the, you know, kill them. So you actually end up with skeletons in the ground, which is, of course, what I do mm. professionally. Um, you haven't got a lot of evidence to go on. If you think about how you would like to kill people in the past, usually with something sharp, pointy, stabby, you don't aim for bone, you aim for the soft tissue. The soft tissue disappears. I've got no knife marks. I've got no axe marks. So um, we, we have a sort of CSI scenario, but with most of the evidence gone. So it is my job to go back and look at, um, you know, when we find eight uh, young adults and teenagers and children arranged in fancy dress at the feet of two other uh, 12-year-olds and uh, work out what exactly that means and what kind of humans we are that we have, uh, you know, basically chucked a bunch of dead kids uh, in a hole. And what has changed in terms of you know, direction in terms of knowing, you know, where I, I did a thing with uh, Sarah Parchak, who, uh, oh, yeah. d you know, d the, these images, I can't remember exactly how it works now, which is images that are taken from, from uh, uh, long distance where we are able to see the discoloration of what is growing uh, and get a sense of where structure used to be. So it's, which is something that could not be observed if we were down at, you know, just, just if you were looking down at the grass, you wouldn't see yes. any discoloration. But from the distances from, from, from space, you are able to detect this, this discoloration. I think she was saying, for instance, Angwat, uh, the um, temple there, yeah. there, there used to be a mystery of there was a, an outside wall, and then right in the middle, 
was this temple, but it was quite a distance. And it was like, oh, well, maybe they're just what they wanted to do, just have a temple in the middle and then this big area in between. And then it turns out by looking at this thing, it's actually, there were buildings everywhere. There was no sense of being... So things like that, I mean, what has changed in terms of being able to use the technology we have now to go, you know, rather than, I mean, previously was it was it generally records? Was it kind of hints that may be from uh, what remained, ruins, etc.? Well, um, you're sort of finding archaeology is, is sort of done in two ways traditionally. One is trying to build something and look, there's a, you know, Roman boat there. Um, then you've got to build around it. Or um, the very old-fashioned way was to do survey. And survey was generally a man on a donkey. Sometimes there was a train, but it was a man on a donkey... Occasionally with a lady on a donkey, but of course she gets written out. Um, and, you know, wandering around going, that's a giant mound in the centre of a plain. I wonder if that's because people built mud brick houses for 7,000 years and they piled up into a mound. Quite frequently the answer was yes. So there's, there's a lot of sort of on-the-ground techniques for finding sites. Oh, look, there's a ton of Roman pottery here. I wonder if the Romans were here. Mm. Uh, what we've got better at is launching things into the sky that see better than we do. So there's always been aerial photography. One of the very earliest sort of archaeological aerial photographers was actually a lady who um, had trained, I think, in between the wars and flew her private plane over things, taking pictures of the geology by leaning out over the edge of her plane and holding a camera, which seems like a great idea. Um, but uh, like what um, Sarah Pachek has been doing um, is using satellite imagery that we already have, like from Google Images, um, or from the many, many satellites that just circle our planet taking images of things, um, to look at, uh, you know, the Earth in a much bigger scale. So satellite imaging is part of what we now call remote sensing. So you can actually pay for a satellite to be flown over something and have a high-resolution image taken. So I used to work on a Greek island called Antikythera, population 42, goat population 3,500. And, um, you know, the project I was working for paid to have the Quick Bird satellite fly over it to take high-resolution images because those didn't exist, which we then used to haul ourselves through this kind of goat-infested landscape. But it did mean that we were able to use those images and find all of these terraces and farms that had been abandoned for about, you know, 60, 70 years at that point. So people use that kind of satellite imagery. And now you've got drones. And as long as you do not anger local aggressive um, fowl, so basically your peregrine falcons do not take kindly to sharing mm. airspace with drones. They don't like it. You don't like it, especially if your drone was expensive. But you can do things like multispectral imaging where you attach a camera that captures, you know, different reds, different blues, things like that, and um, feed them into computer programs that work out in the spectrum different um, sort of signals for, let's say, vegetation or tree cover. Or, and it can actually, because it's sort of bouncing up and down, work out where different things were in the past. So we can now see... Um, city structures that we never knew were there. And I'll, I'll get a shtick from this from someone. But um, the Maya, for instance, were always thought to have these garden cities, these cities where, you know, there'd be a big temple. You can think of the big Maya temples. And there's, there's no real obvious urban architecture. So people thought, all right, well, they're just doing their little ceremony stuff and, and leaving it. And it turns out, no, there's just a lot of jungle on top of everything. Mm. And jungle is difficult to get through and it hurts. So... We just couldn't see until we had all of these remote sensing techniques um, that actually there's plenty of nice straight lines, looks like streets, looks like a city to me. Um, 
so it, it actually allows us to to see a lot of extra stuff that we couldn't see before. Uh, I've, I've tried working out a way to do remote sensing to find skeletons. It turns out that uh, until X-ray glasses are actually a thing, it's not happening. Why didn't they use a bird of prey at Gatwick? I that whole know. drone thing. This is because <laughs> I mean they use birds of prey to make sure to, mm, to, to, to you know uh, make sure there aren't you know smaller birds that would get caught in the machines. Why, why Gatwick? That that thing that happened before Christmas. I mean, Surely I there was the, some kind the, of the, the noise of the. They wouldn't be happy with the noise of all the. Yeah, maybe they anyway. can't get them to say because they yeah. have a falconer for London because there's what like three nesting pairs yeah. or something here, mm. um, two maybe. But um, and they have uh, I think. They have them at other various landmarks and things. But, yeah, maybe maybe you lose a lot of falcons to engines? I don't know. But I would, no, I, no, anyone yeah. did specifically for the drone yeah, problem yeah. where five days of that. Couldn't we have had some wonderful, you know, golden eagle that would have swooped mm-hmm. out the sky? I think, I think we would have all enjoyed seeing that. Yeah, <laughs> or at least, uh, you know, cue the winged serpent, uh, the Quetzalcoatl. Linda, in terms of, I mean, these are two very different areas of study, but in terms of revelation, in terms of that moment where the universe looks different, or indeed human understanding, you know, humans look different from our lower... Do you find that, that in your work you have those moments where sometimes even just looking at the night sky or looking at, the, looking at your own hand, whatever it might be, there is a point where you go, today seems different to yesterday because the universe is a little bit different in terms of your understanding of it? <laughs> Such a profound question. Like it's a, um, I think at some point during my studies, when I started looking at particle physics, and you start like thinking of how everything actually fits together, how the um, the atoms that actually we are all made of all came from. Um, basically stars explosions so, so like um if we think of like a star a star evolution it starts with uh, just hydrogen and helium and then uh, slowly it starts um building up and um, and producing heavier elements and then and then at the end of a star's life if it's like this big sort of explosions called um supernova in which dust um sort of gets um when thrown in the universe. And planets are nothing but some of this dust, if you want, that gets aggregated. And then, and that's, if you want, a little bit of how um, our solar system was also developed and we all started. So the first time I actually had this, um, I realised how much our existence on Earth is actually connected to what happened in the Big Bang, what happened in the early stages of the universe, what happened with the stellar evolutions and so on. It was a bit of a... I don't know. It's like I, I could see the penny drop, and suddenly you start see, you start looking at, at, at everything else very, very differently. You start understanding that, no, it was not a coincidence. It was the only way that things would have, would have progressed. And, um, yeah. No, it was quite a big question. Yeah, 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 it was yeah like it's the, quite uh, a big... I, I like it that you sort of had like a Joni Mitchell moment, like you know, we are stardust. <laughs> no, yeah, we are, we are. At the end, we are. Um, but yeah, actually, there there is actually a connection between archaeology and particle physics. I don't know if you know about this, but no, well, she told me earlier. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I, it, it's I only thought about it like after you started talking. Um, actually, a few years back, I think it was in the fifties or in the sixties. Uh, I don't remember the name of the scientist. I can find out. Um, they started. He started using um 
particle physics techniques to look inside of the um, pyramids in uh, El Giza. So what you do is you put a particle physics detector on one side of your pyramid, another detector on the other side of the pyramids, and then you look for cosmic rays. Cosmic rays are this like uniform radiation that is coming from the universe, and it's natural radiation, so we don't need to add anything else to it. And so you look at it from one side of the pyramid and then from the other side of the pyramid. And by looking at how these particles change their path, if you want, from one side to the other, you can actually find out if there is a secret chamber or not. And, <laughs> and and it turns out not. And, and it turns out not. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is a chamber inside Khufu, which is the big one, which has um, generally some, some amount of tourists either chanting, <laughs> meditating, or leaving razor blades out to see if they'll magically oh, sharpen. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there's all sorts of other fun stuff, too. There's graffiti everywhere inside, oh. like 5,000-year-old graffiti, <laughs> which is I, I appreciate. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that there's 5,000-year-old and then the French wrote on top of that, and then the English wrote on top of that. And <laughs> it's kind of a nice little palimpsesto. We've. Uh, I'm glad you got because we've literally just run out of time, and I'm mm. glad that you've that we uh, you've now the, the the sciences have been united. Uh, thank you very much, Linda. Thank you very much, Brenna. Brenna's uh, got a couple of uh, two or three blog posts up on cosmic shambles. Hopefully, uh, Linda, if you want to write anything, uh, we would love to have because I know that the stuff I'd love to talk next time uh, about the work on in Antarctica as well, yeah. what you did, which is is fascinating. Uh, go and find out more about tra- trailblazers as well, uh, Linda. You can find out a little bit more about from you on UCL website has mm-hmm. some of the stuff about your work thanks very much for listening uh, follow us on all whatever forms of social media there are to find out about all the other science shambles all the other science blog posts there's a new uh, Dean Burnett's just done a new uh, brain yapping flapping podcast uh, for us uh, amongst other things thanks very much bye bye this podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network <laughs>